Good morning. Great to see you. Great to see uh, many of the uh, white people in our congregation back from holiday, looking slightly less white. Hope you had a great time. <laughs> it's not going to last long around here, is it? I'm going to talk today about one of the hardest subjects in life from one of the most unusual books in the Bible. Uh, we're carrying on our Wise Up series, and I'm going to be looking at wisdom in suffering from the book of Job. I think it's just wonderful how God has prepared us for this uh, this morning. Um, you'll, have, you'll notice as you uh, hopefully listen on uh, to what I'm going to say that this has been God's will for you to hear this today. Uh, these words that have been brought by different people, uh, not at all in arrangement with me, have been speaking along a similar line. Uh, so whether you believe in God or not, uh, I hope you will hear this this morning that actually God arranges things and he wants to speak to you today. So as we talk about being wise up, I would encourage you to listen up. And what I want to do is plunge straight in uh, to Job chapter 19, because uh, I just want us to feel the force of what is happening in this book, in this story. Here we go. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? He's speaking to some friends of his. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Ah, my heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. I mean, it's a a powerful chapter in the midst of a powerful book. And Job can actually be quite difficult to read because there is a lot in it that we are meant to disagree with. It's helpful to think of it as a play. Uh, There are a series of scenes, and I've read now from one of those scenes. There's a lot of dialogue going on. As, uh, we'll explain, uh, as I'll explain. And so it's, when you are reading Job, uh, it just in your personal times of Bible reading, I'd encourage you to read it in chunks rather than in individual chapters, even as I have done there. Its author is a poet who doesn't always make their point directly. Um, if you read in the New Testament, you read the Apostle Paul, particularly in his letters, you know what his point is. He'll make it explicitly. He'll tell you what he's going to say, then he says it, then he says it again. Uh, If you have been around churches like King's any period of time, you'll be used to preachers being in that style. That's typically how we do it. We've got a point, we want to tell you about it. Job is quite different. It's written quite differently. It feels quite different. Um, And so I want to respond to that today by preaching uh, slightly differently, by telling you the story of Job. And as we go along, drawing out some points for us to learn uh, that we might be wise in suffering. So we're going to look at the story, we're going to tell the story. So traditional storytelling mode, if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. But it is a long time before this tale has any comfort in it. The book of Job is a true story of a man who had almost everything taken away from him. He was actually the greatest man of his time. He had enormous wealth but he was wonderfully generous as well. He had a large family. He lived a righteous life. He had a true faith in God. In many ways, it seemed that he was living the dream. If there was anyone you wanted to be on earth at that time, surely it was Job. But one day, as the cliche goes, the dream became a nightmare. It started like any other Monday would uh, for him. His children had gathered at the home of his eldest son to eat together and his flocks and herds, which were enormous in number, were being taken care of. And then disaster struck. Bandits raided his land, taking away his animals and slaughtering his servants who were looking after them. Fire fell from the heavens, wreaking more destruction. And most tragic of all, a storm destroyed the house where his children were staying killing them all. Messengers came to Job from each one of these scenes of destruction, bearing the terrible news. And horror and grief and bewilderment hit him, and he sank to the floor and mourned. And as he did so, he worshipped God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return, he said. The Lord gave And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He remained on the ground a long time, unable to move, just overwhelmed by what had happened. As he sat there and these thoughts ran through his head, and he suddenly felt an itch, first in one part of his body and then 
another part, and then all of a sudden, all over him, as sores and boils began to erupt all over his skin. And this, just the, the itching of it made him want to scratch it. And as usual with these things, when you scratch the itch, it gets worse, but you can't stop. And his entire body was filled with this irritating but also agonizing pain as uh, his flesh began almost to corrupt before his very eyes. There was now no relief for him. He couldn't sleep. His mind was full of everything that had happened. Misery and agony had infested every part of his life. He describes all kinds of pain in what we've just read in chapter 19. He experiences physical pain. He says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's saying, I'm barely alive. Social pain. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. He describes all the kinds of people he would relate to and how none of them now will relate to him. The mental pain of all of this. He says to these friends who are with him, how long will you torment me? He says of God, he has set darkness upon my paths. And then those three kind of, they climax and they cause spiritual pain. It says, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as, my, as his adversary. I want us to take this very simple point from Job, and it's this. Suffering happens. You are going to suffer. If you haven't already, you will. Even if you have already, it may happen again. Because we believe in a God who can bless in any and every way, and because we live in a culture which considers hardship to be abnormal, it can be tempting to deny that we are suffering or that we ever will be, or that we ever will. You know, I've, I've said words like that, you know, I don't often hear that preached. It's not usually the kind of books that I choose if I'm choosing some Christian books, like here's how everything may go wrong. And we have this knowledge, don't we, about really everything. We know what we should eat to live well. Uh, we know the practices that we should do uh, to keep our minds sound. We know how we should work efficiently and all these kind of things. And that means that when suffering comes, there can almost be a cloud of guilt that it's somehow our fault. And maybe sometimes it is. But I just, I just want you to hear this, that in this life, there is trouble. There is suffering. Job's story, along with much of the rest of the Bible, tells us that this world is not as it should be and that there are powerful forces opposed to us. And so we will experience suffering. I'm not expecting a lot of amens at this point. I'm not expecting you to kind of cheer that. Uh, but it's my job as one of the guys who pastors you to tell you this and prepare you for it. God's word is full of this and we often don't hear it. We skip on quickly to the, oh, but it will be okay. And I will get to that. But I'm, I'm just wanting to labor this point and Job helps us. His story helps us because it won't move on from the suffering for a long time. Job was fully aware of his pain, but there was something else going on that he did not know about. 
But we, when we read the story of Job, we find out about. And so it's one of the tensions that you experience as you read the book. You know what's going on more than he does. A few days before all these terrible things happened to him, in the courts of heaven, the accuser had come before God and told God that Job, with all his prosperity, only worshipped God for what he got from him. He says, look at Job, he's loaded, of course he worships you. He says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. That is the accusation made against God and against Job. And so calamity falls upon Job, the destruction of his property, the death of his loved ones. But he proves the accuser wrong with his worshipful response. So then another accusation is made. All that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Back on earth, this second round of suffering broke Job's wife. Curse God and die, she says to him, with words uh, that we realise aren't entirely her own. But even in all his agony, Job again refused. Shall we receive good from God and not evil, he says. In all this, we're told, Job did not sin with his lips. News of Job's suffering, as you would expect, travelled quickly. And three friends of his arranged to meet with him, hoping to bring him some comfort. And they uh, met together and then travelled to see him and they were staggered by the sight of him. He was unrecognisable from the man uh, that, he had kn- that they had known. He was seemingly ruined in every way. And such was the sight of him that all they could do was they just, in silence, sat with him seven days. At the end of that time, Job began to pour out his heart, the things that were on his mind, the things and thoughts that had gone through his uh, head. They were full of darkness and death, as you might expect, despairing of what had become of him and baffled by God's treatment of him. At this point, his friends quickly became his adversaries because they believed that God blessed those who did good and cursed those who did bad. And so the answer was very simple in their simple eyes. Job had clearly done wrong. And they say to him, look, this is very simple. You are suffering. God punishes those who are sinful. Therefore, you are sinful. And Job says, I just, I just don't accept that. I refuse to believe that my life was unrighteous before God. And so Job is faced with these, he's almost trying to do this math, this, this working out what is going on. He believed that God had become his enemy. And he knew that God was good. But he couldn't agree with his friends that this was his fault. And so Job won't budge, but his three friends won't budge either. And long hours they spoke to each other, hardening their viewpoints with every disagreement. And it's here when you're reading Job that it can be uh, an interesting experience. Basically, you can take it uh, as a general point that when his friends are speaking, you're not supposed to agree with them because that's God's verdict later on. Uh, But some of them, they'll speak for a long time and you'll read it and think, there's a line here that sounds right. 
but the, the, the truth misguided becomes untrue. The, uh, and these guys, they just, they, they, ha- they weren't good friends. It's often said that the one thing Job's friends got right was when they didn't say anything the first seven days. If you've known people who have uh, suffered greatly, you'll know this feeling. You just think, I have no idea what to say to you. There are no words. But despite that being true, most of us then try and say some things. And I think one of the things this book tells us is that that is not always helpful. Even the right things may not always be helpful. And this goes against what many of us instinctively feel. We want to fix it. We want to make it better. We're actually, part of the reason for that is we were made by God to spend eternity with him in a world that wasn't full of mess and disaster. That's how we're hardwired. And so when things go wrong, we think, I must try and make this right. And there can be a place for that, but to start with the person suffering, trying to fix it, isn't usually what's needed. This is definitely true, I know, uh, for men. So husbands, fathers, friends, the first thing that the sad woman in your life wants is not for you to try and fix it. She wants for you to hear her, uh, for her to know that she's been heard, and um, if appropriate, to know that she is loved, even though this is what's going on. Whoever you are, whoever you're relating to, don't try and fix things straight away. Don't make comparisons either along the lines of, it could have, I mean, you know, you'd never say it in a light heart, but it could have been worse. I mean, just look at those other people, how they're suffering. Come on. This destroys the validity of what someone's experiencing. This tells them that all the pain and all the agony that they are feeling is either not real or not right. And that is of no help whatsoever. And the logic of that is it assumes that there is only one person on earth at any time for whom we can feel sympathy for, the person who somehow we've calculated is suffering the most right now. If that's, how that, that's the logic of that comparison. If you say, oh, well, it could be worse. Okay, well, I must find the worst person then. <laughs> and when I find them, I can you know, try and have some sympathy. But that's just not, how, that's not what life is supposed to be like. I mean, a six-month-year-old child cries at everything. And a six-year-old will come home from school and tell you they've had a hard day. And so will a 16-year-old when they're heartbroken, and so will a student when they've got an essay to write, and so will a 40-something whose job is at risk, and so will a pensioner whose body is failing, and so will a widow in Syria, and so will an orphan in Malawi. At what point is suffering legitimate when we're comparing everything to try and help one another? I don't think that helps at all. The worst case of this, of course, for those of us who are Christians, when you then say, well, of course, Jesus really suffered and he really was innocent. And that is of no help whatsoever. So don't try to fix it, don't compare it, and don't try to give explanations for why bad things happen, as if philosophy could console anyone. 
This is the first of two talks I'm doing over the summer. The next one on the 23rd of August, I will be looking at does God give us answers in Job uh, to the question of suffering. So I'm not saying it's illegitimate ever to think about these things. But again, the grieving person, even if they say, why is this happening, isn't, and I'm speaking mostly to myself and other people who like preaching it, they're not asking that point for you to give a philosophical explanation of why there is suffering in the world. If they're weeping and saying, why is this happening? If you say, well, I can actually give you a quite good answer to that. That's not going to dry the tears of anyone. This includes, I think, not talking right there and then about how God can use what's happening. Romans 8.28 is true. For those who love God, all things work together for good. That is true, wonderfully true. I think most times it's not what you need to hear at the beginning of grief. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 says that there is a time to weep a time to mourn. And Romans 12, 15 tells us, weep with those who weep. Now there is a place for encouragement, uh, for challenge. I'm going to even do some comparing later on in this preach because I'm not speaking to you individually at this moment. And, And so there are times when we have to do that and it's right in a process of grieving or a process of suffering. But the main thing I think to do when people we know are suffering is just to offer to be alongside them. The other thing you can do and you should do is to pray for them. Not necessarily whilst you're with them, but you can go to God by yourself and pour out your heart to him for what's going on and say all the things which perhaps if you said alongside them would damage them or confuse them. You can take them to God directly. The Psalms give us huge resource to do this. Things like Philippians 4 says, I'm going to rejoice at all times and bring, uh, and bring my prayer request to God and he will grant me peace. You can pray that for yourself and for others. You can pray things like Isaiah 42 and God said, I will protect you even when the rivers seem to be coming over you, even when flames seem to be coming around you. God says, I'll keep you safe. You can pray those things. But I think in the immediate We have to just be with people. Thoughts like these never crossed the minds of Job's friends. They were just going to fix this by telling you off. They kept making their accusations. Job kept pleading his innocence. And as this went on and their exchanges grew more stormy, another storm began to brew. The clouds began to roll in. To where they were and the air grew tense and then the wind began to whip and now they were raising their voices not just because they were strongly disagreeing with one another because, but because that was the only way in which they could be heard. A young man tries to join the, the, their debate but despite his youthful confidence he had nothing new uh, to contribute. And so there's four people who have been speaking to Job and Job and a storm blowing and they've been talking and talking and suddenly they are silenced from within the storm in a whirlwind God speaks God comes to Job and speaks to him who God asked was more qualified to rule all things Job or the one who made all things and sustains all things who can face down the fiercest creatures Another creature or the creator? God does little to directly answer 
what Job and his friends have been talking about. He certainly doesn't come as the person who's going to be asked questions of. He asks the questions. He comes as the great judge and declares his might and his glory and his righteousness. And Job says, yes. That, Job says, is what I have been waiting for. See, Job had always known the answers that God asked him questions about. Who is qualified to rule? Who can face down even the fiercest uh, creatures and enemies? Job has always known those answers. But it's now as he meets with God that the answer is finally settled for him. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and am comforted in dust and ashes. It's in Job 42, and that word sometimes I repent in dust and ashes, but I think the meaning actually is Job is comforted at that point. This was the comfort he needed all along, the presence of God. 36 times in this book, he says, I want to speak with God. And he said, I want to talk this through with him. It's a prospect that's both thrilling and petrifying. God arrives and really just puts Job in his place. Job doesn't say much to God. But this comforts and vindicates him because he has kept his faith just about all the way through. How can we do this when we are suffering? See, the issue of suffering is particularly difficult if you believe in an all-powerful, caring, loving, just God that Christianity proclaims and who Job believed in. Atheism has plenty of other philosophical problems that it can't really solve, but this one is easily dealt with if you're an atheist in theory, um, if not in experience. There's no real meaning to anything. Everything is accidental, um, so you can't really assign moral value or worth to anything And there's certainly no God to appeal to uh, for justice or help or care or complaint. Job's issue is that he believes God is good. And yet he has been overwhelmed with evil. Remember, he doesn't know what's going on in the heavenly court. He has no idea that actually he has been maliciously accused of a mercenary relationship with God and is even now proving his innocence. He doesn't know that. For him, it seems like God has become his enemy. He, he and his friends think only God can really make anything happen. And so he doesn't know what's going on. And God seems to be an enemy. And yet he will not let go of God. He won't. The whole time, his faith, which was once certain, it wavers throughout this book. You see it kind of go up and down and all over the place because that's what happens in real life. And the Bible is all about real life. But by his fingertips, Job holds on to God. And chapter 19 that we started with is a breakthrough moment for him in that. He isn't fixed by what happens here. The rest of the book isn't him being like, oh, so actually I'm okay. Um, There's a long discussion uh, that continues. We're only halfway through in chapter 19. But he glimpses the answer here. Or to put it more accurately, he sees the answerer. For I know that my Redeemer lives, 
and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another my my heart faints within me Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. This is a moment for Job of fought for faith. Even though uh, he thinks God is attacking him, even though all that he can see is death and destruction and misery with no end to it, Job states that what he wants and what he is living for is to see God, is the presence of God, a relationship with God. And he says, one day, even though all this has happened to me, that will happen. The force of this realization is so great, so profound, it makes him real. He, he, he almost, I think he's staggered by it. It's like this blast of light, of insight comes into him. And that's why he says, my heart faints within me at the prospect and the promise that this is going to happen. He talks about his redeemer. This title is used throughout the Old Testament to describe someone who acts on God's behalf to protect preserve or rescue someone that they are related to. Uh, they might pay, it, pay a debt, uh, they might give representation in court, uh, whatever it is that they're doing, it's basically they are helping the vulnerable with their strength. And the idea of this comes from what God himself had done for his people. In describing his rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt, God says this in Exodus 6, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So when Job says, my Redeemer lives, he is talking about God. But it's at this point that we leap far beyond what he understood See, we read Job aware of what's going on in the heavenly court, unlike him, but we're also aware of something else that he got a glimpse of but didn't, couldn't comprehend. We see what happened on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. In Galatians 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Redeemer, the one who uses his strength to rescue the one in need, the one who out of love and compassion changes someone else's circumstances when they cannot change them themselves, is Jesus. He's the great Redeemer. He is the one who acts on God's behalf to protect, to preserve, to rescue all those who put their trust in him. And now, because I'm not counselling Job himself, I am going to do the comparison thing. Because we need to do that. Job did experience all kinds of pain. But Jesus was killed in the most horrific manner. Separated from friends and family and from God himself. Anguished in mind and soul, even as his body was collapsing. Job's suffering was undeserved, but Jesus took the punishment for our 
wrongdoing. He took on all that we deserve so that we can be reconciled to God through him. Because God has vented his anger on Jesus, he need not be angry with you. Job looked forward to standing before God. Jesus is risen from the dead and stands with God right now, interceding on your behalf. Even this morning, if you're a Christian, Jesus has been speaking to God about you. Job yearned to see God. Jesus has shown him to us. If you want to know what God is like, read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. And it's when we do this, when we set our eyes on him, we can have faith that survives the worst of times. Discussing the problem of suffering in his book, The Reason for God, uh, Timothy Keller concludes, if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. And, and so this means for me there is a, um, like a, like a three-stage process in my thinking. First point, God gave his son for me to rescue me from, eternal, from the eternal consequences of my sin. So, point two, he loves me and is infinitely good to me. That is the greatest, most loving, most wonderful thing that anyone could have done for me to rescue me from the consequences of my sin forever and to bring me into a relationship with him. And God has done that. In Christ, God has made the way for that to be done for anyone. Point one. Therefore, point two, he loves me and is infinitely good to me. So, point three, anything that suggests he doesn't love me and isn't infinitely good to me is wrong. It is wrong because it cannot have a veto over the cross. Whatever I am thinking or being told to think, whatever I am feeling, whatever people around me are feeling, whatever is happening in my life or around my life, nothing can change the conclusion that the cross has given me, which is that God is loving and infinitely good. And this is faith. Looking at Jesus and trusting in God and his goodness despite what is happening to us and around us. It's not pretending those things aren't there. It's just not allowing them to have the final word. Because that is God's plan for history. Right now, I know I'll be saying that, and some of you are like, I can barely see him. I'm not sure I can see him. Eyes are full of tears. There just seems to be darkness in your whole life. Job only saw a glimpse, and it was enough. Today, maybe you've just seen a glimpse, possibly even for the first time, or you've been reminded and you've seen him again. 
God is stirring faith in you. This faith enables us to prepare for and cope with suffering. It enables us to be sober in our preparation and not hopeless when it happens. Because, and I am going to make a comparison here, Jesus has won an eternal life of joy for us compared to which our suffering now has been declared to be light and momentary. Your suffering may not feel either of those things right now. The Bible says it is compared to what is to come. It's not that it's small, it's small in comparison. And this means that we don't have to pretend uh, that we won't suffer, that we can't suffer, that those we love aren't suffering, because Hebrews 4 tells us this. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can do that. Only Christianity enables you to do that, because God has come to us, lived in weakness with us, taken the consequences of our sin on us and given us all of his goodness. He is our redeemer. The book of Job ends with both God and his servant vindicated and all their accusers, human and otherwise, have been thoroughly rebuked. And on top of this, to make the point, God restores to Job all that he had lost, family, friends, health and wealth. But what mattered most, what he had never quite lost, what was now larger than it had been before, was his faith in God. It had been tested, shaken, battered, but proven of greater worth than gold, we're told elsewhere. And so I want us to declare our trust in God now by singing the Lord's my shepherd. It takes the words of Psalm 23, which is in some ways the inverse of Job 19. Job 19 is full of darkness, but there's a shaft of light in it. Psalm 23 is full of light, but acknowledges that we may have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Both tell us to hope in God. Both say to us that we can trust in God and that that is wisdom in suffering. If you're able to stand, why don't you stand? These aren't small or light things that we've talked about. So let's just turn our attention to God by praying just before we sing. I hope you have felt the comfort and the encouragement of God today. Because he has been saying it to you since the moment you came in this room. Like I said, I I didn't arrange for any of those people to share what they shared. 
but God did. He wanted you to hear this. But this isn't the final proof. The final proof is that his son died for you. Now in your heart, just say a a prayer of faith that says, I believe that. Whatever's happening, I believe that. Lord, help me to hold on to that. You may not be a Christian here. This may seem strange or unusual, but maybe also today suddenly compelling. Suddenly the truth of Christianity, it's like you're seeing a light where before you only saw darkness and confusion. That's true. I want to encourage you to come to God. I encourage you to sing the words we're about to sing and to uh, state them as true for the first time. If you do that, I'd love for you to come and speak to me afterwards or to go up the stairs to the ministry team. They would love to speak with you. Each one of us, wherever we come from, whatever we're going through, let's sing now that God is our shepherd. <laughs>